How many times this week have you said, you need to do this better to someone else? How many times have you said something more along the lines of, good job? There's definitely a time and place for rebuking foolishness or sinfulness or correcting false ideas. But I think in our specific branch of Christianity, we probably forget to encourage people as often as we should who are serving God well. Maybe they're not doing that service in front of everyone. Maybe they're not doing anything that your average person would think is especially profound, but they're everyday believers who are faithfully following God. I think that's a big part of why we have letters like 3 John in our New Testament. John's third letter is written to a small group, probably even a specific individual, um, similarly to 2 John. Unlike 2 John, the recipient is named, and the tone feels a little bit more personal. Uh, there are four mentions of, of a man by this name in the New Testament other than here. In Acts 19, verse 29, he is described to be Paul's companion from Macedonia. And uh, let me just uh, glance here at the context of that with you. This was in Ephesus. Uh, they grab uh, Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, in that whole context where they're shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians, or rather Artemis of the Ephesians. And so um, that is an opportunity for, um, they were facing persecution because they couldn't find Paul in all the chaos. So they grabbed these guys because they said, we've seen them with Paul. And so they're close uh, friends and ministry partners of Paul. We see another man by that name in chapter 20, and it says, here, this man is described as Paul accompanied by Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Um, then there is a mention in Romans chapter 16, and a number of people would see Romans 16 as having been written from the city of Corinth. And there Paul mentions, Gaius, host to me and the whole church greets you, along with Erastus, the city treasurer, and Quartus, the brother. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul mentions that he had baptized this man, or a man by this name. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. A lot of people argue against these being the same person. They would say there's at least five different people by this name. I think that's possible because certain names were more common. I think it's also possible that he goes from Derby to Macedonia to Ephesus and then later to Corinth, host Paul at Corinth. And when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he's been there long enough that he says, by the way, of the people who are a part of the church there, this is one of the two or three people that I've baptized. That's just a, a, a statement on my part of saying, I don't think we have to see this as five different people. It could have been a couple of different people. The one at Corinth that Paul mentions to the Corinthians, that's the mentioned in Romans and Corinthians, and then the one mentioned in Acts. But regardless of that, the, part of my reason of thinking that this man that he's writing to is one of the ones that's mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament is that it seems that the apostles tended to write letters to people who were notable in their specific churches for being leaders in some respect. 
And so someone who had been a traveling companion of Paul, who then demonstrated all of these qualities that John is wanting people to copy, would have been such a person that would have been likely to have received a letter. That's not something that I would say is essential to the meaning of the letter, but it's just something to think about. The themes of the letter are similar to 1 John and especially to 2 John. John rejoices in those who are following God. He talks about genuine love that fulfills God's commands. He addresses the practice of welcoming or not welcoming people in connection to the church. He outlines a group to watch out for, and he expresses a desire to join in fellowship again face-to-face with the recipient or recipients of his letter. When we think about how to structure our thoughts on this letter, or how to apply it to our lives, uh, I was thinking about how last week I kind of presented the sermon from the perspective of John. If it was just from the perspective of his audience, then it would have been something like walk in the truth. You guys walk in the truth. But if, it's, if you see yourself in the role of what John is doing, John is rejoicing in those who are walking in the truth. So if we're saying to this group over here, you walk in the truth, and we're saying from the perspective of those who are observing them, we're rejoicing that we see you walking in the truth, those are two slightly different perspectives. Both of them legitimate biblically because John is doing one thing and the people at um, the, the house of the chosen lady in chapter uh, John, 2 John 1.1 are doing another part of it. But it's important to realize they're not exactly the same perspective. One of the suggested ways that somebody said you could look at 3 John is from the viewpoint of the different people who are mentioned in the letter. You have Gaius, you have uh, Diotrephes, you have Demetrius, and you have John himself. And while I think there is some um, possibility in looking at that, I would say it's a little bit like looking at the book of Acts as being about Peter and Paul. Was it about Peter and Paul? To some extent, but ultimately it's about the work that God was doing in all of those people. And so the way that we're going to uh, look at the development of this letter today is to think about how John was writing, the perspective that he's writing from, but also how the people that he's writing about and to would have received and thought about that. When we bring all these things together, what's the main point of 3 John? We should commend the faithful. So we should ask, what sort of people does John regard as faithful? And what does faithfulness look like for us in light of this short letter? The first thing that I think commending the faithful looks like is in your responses to them. We see this in verses 1 through 4. First of all, a response of love. He says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. These are variations on the biblical word agape. So it's something that is, uh, we tend to think of, you know, the, the root word that we get the name Philadelphia from is more like brotherly love. Agape is more sacrificial love. And then there's also more of like a romantic or sensual kind of love as between a husband and wife. And so in this instance, Paul, or not Paul, John is talking about a sacrificial kind of love that he has toward Gaius and that Gaius seems to have in response to John as well. So one of the responses that 
is a way of commending those who are faithfully following God Excuse me. is in our love toward them. Now, if you have somebody that you're really close with um, and you're talking to that person, um, I'm not trying to make light of this. Sometimes, especially like little girls and maybe teenagers will say something like, we're best friends forever, right? Okay? Um, when you get to be an adult, it's, you know, maybe considered to be a little bit childish to sort of, you know, go about it that way and describe it that way. But there are people that you might be really, really close with. This looks different for women than for men. Um, my sister-in-law, Hannah's fiance, was telling us a story about how there was a guy that he went and worked out with at the gym for about two years, and they both forgot each other's names, so they were doing the whole, hey, buddy, hey, man, how's it going thing for two years. Um, ladies, you would feel really awkward. You would just be like, oh, I'm not going to talk to that person at all because I don't know that person's name. Potentially. I mean, for most of you, probably. Um, this looks different, but there is, you can all think about what this looks like to have a closeness of relationship with somebody. And in our culture, in our time, you know, one guy might not say to another, hey, hey there, beloved, how are you doing? To another guy. But the attitude where there's a close bond of friendship is something that I think we understand. We see it with David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. We see it in portrayed in various things of like literature and movies and TV shows. You know, who here's two people who have each other's back. We see it in the context of the battlefield. Here's a group of soldiers, and you know, there's this idea of the band of brothers. You know, we're united with each other, we're close with each other, we're committed to each other. That's the sort of relationship I think we see a glimpse of in the way that John is writing here. But it doesn't stop with just a statement of a relationship that has been sacrificial and ongoing and all of those sorts of things, but it is expressed through prayer for that other person. He says, Beloved, I pray in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. And it's one thing to say, hey, we're really close and we do all these things and we spend all this time but are we concerned about that person's soul? Is it a companionship that's not just about secular things, but about their good before God? And we tend to say something, we tend to get this the opposite of the way that John lays it out here. We tend to say something like, have good health, and then tack on and have a good relationship with God. Because those are the things that are important to us in American society. Health, and then maybe religious stuff. But John ties it together the other way, I think. He says, as your soul prospers, may everything else go well in your life. And that's a really important perspective because sometimes we blindly believe, and I know this because I've done this in my life before, my soul can be not doing well, my walk with God cannot be doing well, but everything else will go well. And it can for a little while, but not long term. If you're not walking with God, if you're not really devoted and faithful in your relationship with God, everything else is going to start to fall apart too. Sometimes it takes longer. Sometimes it's not immediately visible to everybody else. Sometimes somebody can lie about it their whole life long. 
because we see these accounts of people that someone thinks, well, this is such an amazing person, and then after they die, all these terrible things come out about what they really were. Um, there needs to be a prayer that your soul prospers, and then, or at least, at, at the very least, that those things are all happening at the same time. Your health prospers, and your business matters prosper, but not disconnected from your soul prospering. I mean, I don't think it's too far-fetched to tie this to what Jesus said. What does, it get, what does it gain someone to have the whole world and to lose his soul? Sometimes we think that if we have money or if we achieve some particular goal, that's the thing that will really matter. And what God cares about is, how is your soul before me? You could be, you know, not the highest employee in the company. You could be someone who has not the biggest house. You could be someone who has not the nicest car. You could be someone who nobody writes a bunch of biographies about. But if you walk with God faithfully, that's what really matters. That's what really counts. And that's what John commends his friend Gaius for. Not just love toward them in a statement that's been borne out by past experience. Not just prayer for them, for their soul first and foremost, but other things as well. But also a rejoicing in their testimony before God and men. John said he's very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. Now, people use this phrase in really weird ways today. What's your truth? That's not how we should hear it. We hear that like on a talk show, you know, my truth is that I believe this really weird thing about the world. My truth is that I have this messed up view of God. My truth is whatever. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying your truth as in how you are walking in truth. In other words, the message that you're proclaiming matches up with the life that you're living. And that is provoking people around you to notice it and rejoice in it and tell other people about it. So somebody traveled from wherever Gaius is to where John is to tell him, Gaius is walking in truth. That's the sort of life we should want to live. If we are known for something, it should not be um, the sorts of things that usually go on signs in yards. You know, there was, uh, when we visited our friends up in Traverse City, their neighbors had and had for a while in their yard something about, like, take down Line 5. So what do they want to be known for? Get rid of Line 5. Okay? Great. If that's the sum total of your achievements in life, that's pretty sad. There was a guy that I knew who died while drunk, driving his motorcycle, went off a cliff. What they put on his tombstone? He loved beer and he loved riding fast. That's a sad summary of your life. If we're going to be known for something, we should be known for walking in the truth such that it's contagious and it makes other people want to talk about it and once makes them want to walk in truth. But then verse 4, John says, why am I so excited about this? He said, I have no greater joy. My greatest joy is to hear my children walking in truth. So Gaius is a friend, but someone whom John in his probably 80s, maybe 90s at this point, is saying, 
He's also like a son to me or a grandson to me. I am rejoicing that he's following after God. And I, I'm, I'm happy if he's healthy. I'm happy if the rest of his life is going well. But if he's walking after God, that's my greatest joy. That should be our prayer for the people around us in this church. That should be our desire for ourselves, that if nothing else, we are walking with God and people around us know that we're walking with God, not because we're trumpeting it in the streets like the Pharisees. Look at me, I am so wonderful. John's point is not be insufferable and, and make everybody like rub it in people's face. I'm so holy and you're not. John's point is to say, if there is a quiet, humble, observable walk with God, that has a huge impact on the people around you. It's the stories that we read in biographies of, you know, pagan children who at some point in their lives think back to dad or mom who was regularly reading the Bible and say, they had something that I need, and they come back to it. It's people who you work with who watch you responding in a way that honors Jesus, and it's not dramatic, and it's not profound, and it's not extraordinary in one respect, but it is in another because why are you responding this way in the midst of all this chaos and everybody striving to push other people down and get themselves up and all these other sorts of things? Why are you responding this way? It's a simple, clear testimony of what God is like. So we ought to, I think, based on the example of John in this letter, we ought to commend the faithful in how we respond to them. On what basis are we responding to them? What is it that we're commending them for? So if the first point is the how, love, prayer, rejoicing in what's going on in their lives, the second point is the what. What are we commending them for? Verses 5 through 8, their service. Especially, I think we see in verse 5, when such service is regular and even extends to strangers. So it says in verse 5, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren. When he says whatever you accomplish, I don't think he's meaning like, as long as you get something done, that's great. I think he's meaning this. In all the things that you're doing on behalf of the brethren, you are doing them faithfully before God. So maybe a parallel to what it says, I think it's in Colossians, how are we supposed to serve those who have authority over us as though we're serving God and not men? Or as it says in 1 Peter, um, Brady and I were talking about this yesterday, when we exercise the gifts God has given us, how do we use them? With the confidence that God's power and God's work stands behind what he's enabling us to do. And so in whatever he was doing, whatever work he was doing in the church, he was doing it faithfully in service to God. And he was doing it not just for the people who were a known part of the church, but also for people who were coming in from the outside. It says, even when they were strangers. Now, we're going to see more about what those strangers are in just a moment. But if someone comes into the church and they say, hey, I love Jesus. I'm following after Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. But you know nothing about that person. Um, there's a tendency to say, can I trust this person? Is what they're saying genuine? You know, should we actually believe them? Should we reach out to them? All those sorts of things. And maybe that's not your disposition, but I think it's easy for me, at least, in the past to have sort of that thought, that attitude. And I'm not saying that Sarah and I are like Gaius, like, 
we're the only examples and you should follow us and there's not better examples. Like there are people who have been doing these sorts of things that I'm about to describe all through down through the years. This is just one example that comes to mind. But there was a guy that came and visited the church, I think it was last year, maybe in the spring. And he was here for a work trip and he showed up and we got to talking to him. I think it was around, around Memorial Day. It was in the fall? Okay. Around Labor Day. And he's like, hey, I'm here for a couple of days. I just looked your church up randomly and we started talking to him. We're like, we don't know this guy really at all. And we got to thinking, well, he's far from home. He's probably just going to sit in his hotel room. He doesn't really have anything to do. Let's have him over. And we had him over for supper on uh, Labor Day. And it was a really good, encouraging experience. We, I think, miss out on those experiences sometimes because we have a list of excuses ready to go. And I'm not saying like that I'm looking down on you for these excuses because I've made them too. Okay? We have excuses like, my house is a mess. I'm not going to have a really fancy meal to offer them. I'm going to uh, not know what to talk to this person about. Maybe it's too far for them to drive to where I live. You know, all of these different things we can come up with. And maybe some of those things are true, but maybe those things shouldn't be the driving thing that interfere with us saying, here's an opportunity to have fellowship with another believer. Now, is there the possibility that person turns out not to be a Christian, even though they said they were? Sure. Which then means what? You have a captive audience to witness to. That's not a bad thing either. So, um, Gaius and others in the church seem to have had this attitude of, we're going to minister to people, and as we're going to see in the next verse, show hospitality to them in a way that provides these opportunities for encouragement and fellowship. And why was John commending him? Because he's serving broadly across the way and specifically to people who are strangers and particularly in the area of hospitality. So let's look at that. This is especially commendable when those who are receiving hospitality are serving God sacrificially themselves. So those of you who um, take opportunity to have a uh, visiting missionary stay with you or take time to write a letter to them or encourage them in some way, even if it's a small thing. I'm not saying you have to spend $1,000 and send a really fancy care package to a missionary for it to be appreciated and welcomed and helpful. Sometimes the simple act of you reaching out, hospitality isn't just about having someone to your house for a meal, although that's the thing we commonly think of. It can be about ministering to the needs of someone else and encouraging and helping that person. And that can have a profound impact. And why do I say that? Because it says in verse 6, they have testified to your love before the church. Here's people who came in, you didn't know them, but you had the sense that they're believers and you decided to show hospitality and kindness and serve them in some way, and then they went back and told their churches, hey, look at what God's doing in this church. Here's how they encouraged us. Here's how they're helping us. And why was this so significant? They were serving God sacrificially themselves. How were they being treated when they showed up at these churches and, and Gaius and others received them? Just like I would argue he or another man of the same name hosted Paul in uh, the end of the book of Romans. It says, you'll do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. If Jesus came to your house, how would you receive him? What did Jesus say about those who are that whole sheep and goats discussion in Matthew? I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. 
I was naked and you clothed me. I was tired, you gave me a place to sleep. I had nowhere to go and you took me in. I think, in terms of the history of churches like ours, one of the things that we have to be very careful of is a right commitment to purity of doctrine can be skewed by Satan into a disunity and distrust and unwillingness to welcome people. So here's what I mean. We come at our church, as best I can trace the history of it, from what happened in the early 1900s, which was people who didn't believe the Bible started taking over churches. They were coming from seminaries that taught evolution and that the Bible is not true and Jesus isn't God and all those sorts of things. They started taking over churches. For a while, there was opposition to that. At a point where they felt like they couldn't win the fight anymore, people like J. Gresham Machen among the Presbyterians and various groups among the Baptists and other, other denominations as well left those churches, formed new denominations, and, and, and went on from there. The problem is a right commitment to disconnect yourself from false teaching can become a suspicious attitude that doesn't welcome anybody. And so what's happened over the course of time is you had some people who left and kept going further and further and further and more and more isolated so that you had little groups where it's like a handful of people who are like, we're the only true Christians in the whole world and everybody else hates God. There was another thing that happened, which is that forked, separated, went a separate way. And so you had some people saying, all right, we can't collaborate with error, but we can't live in isolation. Who is it that we can fellowship with? Then you had people that stayed in those secular denominations who said, all right, something is wrong, and they at a later date fought and to some extent took over and started to turn the tide back toward the truth, and then the people that wanted to be committed to error went this way, the people that wanted to follow truth this way, and so some of the people who left and some of the people who stayed have started finding themselves on a parallel path, even though their historical alliances were in different groups. Why is all that important? Because there is an opportunity for us to say, I can be less concerned about denominational lines and less concerned about historically where a particular group was and make a point-in-time assessment of where is this person right now and say, this person that calls himself a conservative evangelical and this person that calls himself a not crazy fundamentalist, not like we're going to isolate from everybody, nobody loves God except me kind of person, we can have fellowship with each other. Even though historically, maybe the people before us, we felt like made the wrong decision. What does that have to do with hospitality? If our first question is, what's your theological background, what's your denominational background, where did you go to college, all of those sorts of things, and we make assumptions based on those things that we know exactly where a person's heart is and where their life is and all those sorts of things, we are likely going to lose the opportunity to have genuine fellowship with someone with whom we can genuinely fellowship because we assume we know where they're at when we don't. Now, 
Sometimes you meet people and you say, you know what, we can have fellowship as Christians, but we can't have partnership in like a church planting thing. That's fine. I've given this illustration before. Someone who believes in infant baptism and someone who believes in baptism of believers by immersion as an adult probably are not going to be super successful trying to plant a church together because they're going to get a lot of little scuffles over things that to them are very important, but they do not define them as believer-unbeliever. But could I still go to lunch with somebody who believes in infant baptism? I hope so. Could we still potentially say, you know what? We're going to try to reach a particular neighborhood for Jesus with you, even if we have different ideas about what happens next after they trust in Jesus? Potentially. We have to say, where, where are these really important lines to be drawn? Are the really important lines to be drawn over issues that have been issues for churches like ours in the past? We talked about this before. There was a time period where people said, if you had a beard, you're a hippie, you don't love Jesus, you're not welcome in our church. Was that really the right move for our churches? We can't go back, we can't change it. But I think we have to say, what are the things that are the line that is drawn between welcoming and not welcoming someone? We talked about this from 2 John. And the point I tried to make last week is the the line is, if they deny Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as God, Jesus as the Savior, those are important things to say, yeah, we can't have fellowship with you because we don't believe in the same God. But can we have a difference of practice when it comes to things like what our worship service looks like, the recent um, uh, discussion about what sort of wedding you go to. Do you go to a family member's wedding if you disagree with the person they're marrying or if they've been living with that person for a while or any number of other related things? Someone can have a difference of opinion of conscience on one of those matters, and I think still be a genuine believer in someone we can fellowship with, but we're kind of hesitant to do that because we want to say, all right, if you're going to come to our church, you need to line up with all these things. I'm not saying what's in the statement of faith is unimportant. I'm saying I would much rather have somebody who says, you know what? I'm going to talk a lot more about free will and people need to trust Jesus, but I'm going to go present the gospel. And they're out there preaching the gospel. I would much rather have an Arminian that's preaching the gospel than a Calvinist that's just sitting at home. Conversely, if there's someone who's Calvinistic and preaching the gospel because he's confident God can save people and does save people, and there's someone else who's like, oh yeah, you know, people have a choice, but they never offer anybody the opportunity to make that choice, Broadly speaking, I'll take the person that's preaching the gospel any day regardless of which particular theological camp they put themselves in. As long as they're preaching the gospel, great. So, what does that have to do with welcoming people? Treat them as you would God himself. With honor, with service, without suspicion. There were people who wanted to check Jesus' credentials too. You... Match up with this? Match, oh, hang out with tax collectors and sinners. You're not welcome here. We need to be careful that we're not adding things to what God has said.
Why should you honor them? Because they went out for Jesus' sake with no support. Why do I say that? It says they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. People following Paul's example and saying, I'm going to preach the gospel to you, and you ought to support me because I'm ministering God's word. I'm doing something for God, just like the priests of the Old Testament were supported by the congregation in that day. You have, a, I, you have an obligation to support me, but I'm not going to exercise that right because I want you to hear the gospel, and that's the most important thing. So they went out in faith. Now, I'm not saying that missionaries today who raise support and then go somewhere else are not walking in faith, but it takes a lot to say, I've got nothing, I don't know where I'm going to stay, I don't know how I'm going to eat, but I'm going to go to this place and preach the gospel because I think it's really important to do. That's hard. That only works if there's people on the other end who say, we will greet you as we would Jesus, we will serve you because you're serving Jesus, and the last thing here, because it's an opportunity for us to share in the truth. Verse 8, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Sometimes we want to be fellow workers with common opinions. Sometimes we want to be fellow workers with people who look like us. Our goal, first and foremost, should be fellow workers with those who are proclaiming the truth, who are serving God, and who are desiring to see souls saved. That, that should be where we're starting with. Why? Or, or what's the next thing that's supposed to happen? We're supposed to commend the faithful in how we respond. We're supposed to commend the faithful in what we're responding to. And we're supposed to con con uh, commend the faithful by rebuking the proud who get in the way of their ministry. We see that in verses 9 to 10. What's wrong with the proud? Verse 9, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. They reject God's authority. John is writing as an apostle to this church, and Diotrephes says, nope, we're not going to listen, because you need to listen to me, not that guy. We don't know exactly what John wrote. I was reading an interesting article that proposed the idea that 2nd and 3rd John were cover letters that were sent with 1st John to various churches. I don't know if there's any evidence in church history. It's an interesting idea. But they were basing it on the fact that Diotrephes didn't let the church see John's letter. So John had to send it again with someone else, presumably Demetrius, which we're going to see in verse 12. Now, again, I'm not saying that we have to believe that for this verse to have the significance, but if you have someone who is receiving a message from the apostle, John, and says, nope, I'm not going to listen to that because you need to listen to me instead, that's a problem. That person needs to be rebuked. Otherwise, the person who's faithfully serving God is going to get discouraged. Why? Because, verse 10a, they falsely accuse those who are truly serving God. For this reason, if I come, I'll call attention to his deeds, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. So if they're going after John the Apostle, do you think they're also going after people in their church who are not the Apostle? Probably. So if you don't deal with people like that, it's going to discourage those who are faithfully serving God. So they have to be dealt with. Why else? Because they're undermining the good work of the faithful. They're rejecting apostolic authority. They're falsely accusing those who are truly serving God. And they're undermining the good work of the faithful. It says, he doesn't receive the brethren and he forbids those who desire to and puts them out of the church. So it seems that here's this guy in his pride and in his self-sufficiency and his misunderstanding of what God is doing in the world rejects a letter from the Apostle John, exercises some 
corrupted form of church discipline on people who are showing hospitality and needs to be rebuked. So John says, I'm rebuking him. Don't listen to him. Don't be discouraged by him. God's going to deal with him, and I'm going to deal with him. It's important when commending the faithful to deal with those who are unfaithful and who are actively opposing God's work so that God's people are not discouraged and so that God's words get through to the people who actually care to follow them. The last thing that John does, I think, is commending the faithful by encouraging them. He reminds Gaius and others of what he already knew and was practicing. Look at verse 11. Don't imitate what's evil. What's the evil? Probably what he was just saying about Diotrephes, verses 9 and 10. But follow what is good. Again, the example that John and others had set. Why? Because doing good is of God. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Whether or not Diotrephes was genuine a believer, he was acting like he wasn't. And so John is saying in a very stark statement like he used in 1 John, if you do evil, you don't know God. If you're doing good, you know God. We can be confident of it. If you do evil, it seems like you don't know God, and we're just going to put you in the category of those who don't know God. So the irony is, Diotrephes is exercising church discipline on people for doing the right thing, and he himself needed to be receiving it for his wrong actions toward them. John not only commends Gaius by encouraging him, reminding him of what he knew and was practicing, but giving further opportunities to be faithful. All right, Gaius, you've welcomed even strangers. Now I'm going to send somebody to you who might be a stranger to you, but isn't a stranger to me. Here he is. His name's Demetrius. Why should you welcome him? He has a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. So all the people that know him can give him a character reference. And the truth itself witnesses that he's living and walking according to the truth, which is the thing that John has commended Gaius for doing. So now I'm sending him to you. And if you're not sure about the other two things, what other people have said and whether his life matches up to the truth, I'm giving him a personal recommendation. And you know me. You know that what I'm telling you is true. Welcome, Demetrius. In light of your hospitality in the past, in contrast to Diotrephes' pride and the threat of Going back to the sort of thing that people who followed Jesus in the early days had to face, being put out of the synagogue, being put out of the church. Be bold. Keep being faithful. Welcome, Demetrius, when I send him to you, presumably with the letter of 2 John, possibly also accompanied with other writings of John. And then the last way that John was going to encourage this faithful man was by looking forward to times of mutual encouragement. He wanted to visit shortly and to share his heart, not just... He felt like, I can't really put it into a letter. I want to see you and speak it face to face. And in the meantime, he sent greetings of peace from God and from other believers and encouraged them to keep greeting and encouraging one another in that same way. So why do we have 3 John? Because those who are faithfully following God need to be encouraged to keep doing it. Why do we have 3 John? Because there are people who are going to try to get in the way of showing hospitality and encouragement and ministry of service and all of those sorts of things, and they need to be rebuked. Why do we have 3 John? Because there's things that we already know, but we have to keep working in, and we have to keep pre uh, taking new opportunities to do. Not say, well, I used to do this 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I don't do anything anymore for God, but I used to. 
Now, will it change over time? Absolutely. Some of you can't drive an hour to go do whatever to help someone in a time of need. But you can pray for them, and you do, and that's good. You might not be able to fill in the blank, but you can fill in the blank of something that you're actively doing. Don't quit. Don't be discouraged. Keep doing it. God has not forgotten, as it says in 1 Corinthians, God doesn't forget your work. Your, your work is not in vain in the Lord. Be encouraged. Keep being faithful. John is commending someone who's faithful. If you're living in that way this morning, he's commending you too. Keep at it. Keep serving God. Keep figuring out new ways to serve God. Don't be discouraged by bad examples of people around you. Look at the privilege and the opportunity that you have to welcome and help other believers in this church, from outside this church, people who show up randomly that you've never met before in your life but turn out to be believers. There is such a huge opportunity for you to be faithful and to continue to be faithful. And John says, we ought to encourage that. We ought to support that. We ought to live it out. Let's pray. Father, help us to consider these truths that John has written to us and that we would draw closer to you in them. Amen.